Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. It's episode 110. I'm Phil, joined with Logan and John, as always. Special thanks to Shaper Tools, makers of the Shaper Origin, the handheld CNC router that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. Tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. You can try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Visit shapertools.com to learn more. All right, I thought I'd start out with a couple of uh, a couple of comments from some previous episodes here. This one's from Kevin Thomas, who writes, Logan, ash is a fine wood for a workbench. I've taught a class several times where we used ash. All my students were happy with the product. Don't be a wood snob. And Rick B says, glad to have you back, John. I need to have my tools visible. Otherwise, I forget about them. Out of sight, out of mind. So my primary storage is a six-foot by four-foot pegboard panel. That was on our episode, I think, last week where we tried to uh, nail down some ideas for tool storage. So there you go. Just to be clear. All right. I'm not being a wood snob. I just don't <laughs> like the way ash looks for a workbench. Okay. If I'm gonna build, because... if I'm gonna take the time to build a workbench, I want the way, I want it to look how I want it to look. I just don't want it mm. to look like ash. Like mm. I, I love ash. I've used it in a lot. I cut a lot of it. I just don't want it for my workbench right now. Yeah, Kevin, it can be a little busy, but yeah. Or requires a lot of extra cutting in order to get really straight grain. Because oh, yeah. I think especially for a, the top of a workbench, the last thing you want is flat sawn where you got lines all over the place. I did saw. Um, I had a friend's skid loader at my house over this week, the weekend. Um, so I cut a couple of the logs that are just too big for me to handle with my tractor. One of which was a, a beautiful, I mean, it was it was huge. It was a beautiful ash log. Um, and it was, I cut two ash logs. Um, one of them looked perfect, but there was a ton of knots in it. Like, from the outside, it looked like the perfect hmm. log. The next one was just huge. Um, but I cut it, and it was absolutely clear. I mean, the cleanest, clearest ash I have ever cut. Um, and it had that really nice dark heartwood. John, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I feel like you're just like going on and on. So you can keep saying ash. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I'm not. I love, I love when ash gets that dark heartwood. A lot of people call it olive ash. I think we talked about this last week. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But not being a snob about it. I just. You're just not an ash man. I just, you know, <laughs> no, I'm not. I There's like nothing the, wrong with it. It's no, just not your thing. It's not my thing. Right. right. It's a good wood. We're not putting it down. <laughs> and there's a lot of it now, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. You probably can't transport it across state lines, though. No, technically not. Although I think you can if it's been kiln dried, but I don't know how. It's not like you how put you like a stamp that? on it that said right. kiln dried. I was surprised to see a, a map of Iowa the other day that some counties in northwest Iowa still don't have, like, reported or confirmed emerald ash borer infestations. Or are they just not looking hard enough? I, say, I don't they're, know. They're just denying it. Probably, yeah. Emerald ash borer deniers. 
Yeah. I'm calling you out in northwest Iowa. They're also the counties that never had uh, coronavirus outbreaks. Yep. It's <laughs> coincidentally similar counties. That's going to get our comments up. <laughs> yeah, let's raise those. <laughs> yep. Interaction with readers. That's All the yeah, feedback shows that people were listening. Super, so. super funny. So speaking of which, uh, you're going to be clearing some lumber timber from your place for your shop pretty soon, right? I have already. I have, oh, uh, you have one tree left to take down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. I've stacked all the, cut a bunch of walnuts, bunch of, a uh, bunch of elms. I just, I just piled those up into a big pile. They're going to get burned. Not being a wood snob. It's stinky when you cut it. Si- it's Siberian elm. It's not red elm or American elm. It's a Siberian elm. And they're it, right. And, and that gets really, there's a lot of silica in Siberian elm, yes. right? Yes, and it also does not like to dry flat. It's an interlocking grain wood. So like yeah. the fibers, instead of being you know parallel to each other, they kind of weave in and out. So as it dry, it doesn't split with, you know, for firewood, it doesn't split with crap. But it also, I think those fibers end up fighting each other as it dries and it likes to do the wave, you know? Yeah. I, uh, my first foray into carved bowls was a section of a log that I got from Chris Fitch, which at the time I thought he told me was Chinese chestnut, but I think it was Chinese slash Siberian elm. And it wasn't as wet as I thought it was going to be. And because it wasn't chestnut and was elm was terrible on my hand tools trial by fire right so it's this so a it was dry so it didn't cut very or it cut cleanly when i kept my tools super sharp but i was you know like sharpening every 10 minutes it felt like and and you're right with the interlocking grain like i could not get pieces to come out you know you just get like little tiny chunks that was all you could get i i found because when we when we bought our property, there was a big pile of logs anyways. And I, I pulled out the nice ones and started splitting the rest. And it does not split worth a crap. It's so stringy. Like, I had a 35-ton yeah. log splitter. It would split it if it was freezing out because then the wood fibers are frozen. And right. the water right. and the wood fibers are frozen. So then it would break apart. But that was about the only, only way to get it to split. So, you know. And is what it is. I find it fascinating that uh, elms, there's in Iowa, there's like 14, 15 different species of elms, and they're all slightly different. They all look a little different, and they share similar properties, but they all have completely different looks from the wood structure. Right. So, like, you cut an elm and you're like, oh, what is this? And a guy will walk down the street and say, yeah, it's a Chinese elm. And say, it's an American elm. Oh, it's a slippery elm. It's a red elm. It's like, nobody really knows. It's just an elm. <laughs> it's an elm and that's it. Well, we're still in the middle of construction here. The I'm in the video studio. So the drywall guys, I think, put their final coat on today. And we'll be ready for paint next week. So hopefully we'll be able to have things kind of quiet down here a little bit because it's been a little nutty with 
doing all the electrical work and the plumbing in the studios for our cooking and gardening magazine that will be just kind of adjacent to us over here. So apologize to anybody who hears some construction noise as we go along. Now, my topic for today, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast over the last couple of years off and on is, you know, like what is the right, you know, like the very personal decisions of sizing your workshop, choosing your tools, um, what kind of things you keep or don't keep, you know, whether it's patterns and templates and stuff like that. And, um, uh, I feel like I'm kind of a conflicted trying to decide whether I'm a, a hoarder with minimalist impulses or a minimalist with hoarder impulses, because, you know, periodically through the year, I need to just like purge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think scrap. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's referred to as workshop identity crisis. (laughs) I'm sure it is. You want to keep it all, but you want to keep none of it. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I try, I try to, think I'm the same too. I'm a minimal, minimalist, but then you know that I have stuff on shelves and <laughs> in the studios there. And, and maybe it doesn't bother me because it's not my place. It's like, I'm storing it in somebody else's place. And right. But yeah, I do the same where it's like, why, why do I keep hanging on to this? Why do I keep moving it? So. Yeah. You know, and I feel that way about tools. Like if I haven't used a particular tool or something in a while, then it's like, why, why do I even have this? And I think part of it is just wanting to be responsible with resources, you know, whether it's time, money, or space. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then I think, I also think that, you know, that in woodworking, it's very easy, easy to call each other names on stuff. And one of, one of the many divisions that, we like to put each other in is whether you are, if you have a lot of tools, whether you're a user or a collector. And Mm -hmm. because collector as a pejorative ends up being those who buy up tools that the rest of us would actually like to have, but it raises the price for us thrifty folk and removes a bunch of tools from circulation that could ordinarily be helping people or it's folk that are using tool acquisition as a financial investment tool. Hence the fact that there are no Stanley number ones anywhere. Why are you looking at me, Philip? (laughs) (laughs) This is an intervention. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've admitted it. You've talked about it. Oh yeah. Like that's how I fund some of my nice tools is I, buy crappy tools and make them a little bit less crappy and then sell them. Right. But again, you're, you're putting them back into circulation correct? and lowering the barrier to somebody that pay a little bit more, but there's a less time and skill involved in bringing that tool to a functional place. Yes. Now I would make an argument because I like to do this that there is also people, there are also people that are a hybrid of that. And that's where I would group myself, right? I would group myself that 
I have some very nice expensive tools that I have bought. However, I also use those tools. I don't buy tools to sit on a shelf like my Bill Carter planes. Very uh-huh. expensive. Right. Phil used one the other day to yeah. tackle some tear out and it was phenomenal. And I'm like, this it is why I like bought it. Yeah. yeah. So like, mm-hmm. like I appreciate it as a nice tool. I'm not going to abuse it, but I will use it. I'm not going to put it on my, on my study shelf and just sit there and ponder it over my bourbon and cigars. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be my shop. It's yeah. going to be dusty right now. It's throwing my toolbox yeah. in the studio. So, right. You know, it's one of those things. I, I appreciate it for what it is, but I also appreciate it for what it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. So anyway, you know, because we've discussed this back and forth and it it periodically comes on my mind, struck me in the sense that just this past weekend, uh, I read an article in the New York Times by a guy named Questlove. I don't know if you've heard of him before. It's a family name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just one word, quest love. Mm-hmm. And he was talking, he had an article, uh, I'll post the link to it in the show notes page and on the YouTube page. Um, the, the title of it was called my collection is an act of devotion and creation and reading it helped kind of solidify in my head a little bit and eased some of the, I don't know, tension that I have about whether, you know, why I keep some of the things that I have or why I have an impulse to keep them in the first place. So I just want to read a few, few quotes from the article here. So, uh, he was talking about, you know, because he's a musician, a lot of his memories are around surrounding musicians and music. So then he said, I got to thinking about the physical objects that brought me those experiences, vinyl records, print magazines, collecting those items became a way to prevent the past from slipping away. Then he also says a collection starts as a protest against the passage of time and ends up as a celebration of it, which I thought was kind of an interesting way to look at, uh, our workshops, you know, and the tools that we have is not, you know, is to use it as a, almost like a photo album would be where you use it as a way to mark the passage of time. You know, like this is, you know, your kindergarten school picture and here's your senior picture and that kind of thing. So that was kind of, kind of cool. And then a couple more here, and then we can talk about it a little bit more. And then he was asked, he asks himself the question about stuff that he has is what's the best way to make sure that the things that he has are not just seen, but understood, not just possessed, but inhabited. And that his projects reminded me that legacy matters, that mine is largely about illuminating the legacy of the culture that made me. Gives me a hope for a future with the confidence to hold the past, to protect it and preserve it, to explain it and elevate it, to keep its light shining brightly even as it drifts out into the sea of time. Anyway, that helps me or helped me, I should say, you know, think about like on the walls of my shop, I have a variety of templates that I made for projects that I did in the past. And I don't know that I'll ever make them again, but I kind of want to hold on to them because I might. And every time I see them or notice them, 
they do remind me of projects that I made and the people that I made them for and kind of helps me realize, you know, that holding on to that number three sized hand plane that I have in my shop from that I got from a antique mall here in town. Um, that wasn't a very good plane, but taught me a lot about planing and sharpening. You know, like there's nothing wrong necessarily with holding on to some of those things and using them as markers for the progress of my woodworking. Yeah, just uh, he was mentioning the magazines and vinyls in that. And that kind of makes me think of here and a lot of people that have um, subscribed to the magazines for a long time have the bound volumes of the magazine. But we also now have um, access to, you know, digital archives but it's really hard to get rid of those paper copies, even though they take up a lot of space. It's like, I like to, you know, pick up a old shop notes magazine and th thumb through it and kind of go through all the things that were in that issue and find cool stuff where it's like, it's really hard to thumb through a digital archive. You go in there and you pretty much have to search for a specific thing or you have to be looking for a specific thing. So it's, you know, kind of hard to, to reminisce there or find yeah. just happen upon, you know, cool projects or cool techniques that were in those issues. So it's really hard to, to let those go, even though they, you know, take up quite a bit of shelf space in our offices or in our shops or, or where, wherever those are. So, yeah, that was something else that I had thought of too, is, you know, obviously we're talking about this on a digital podcast, which is pretty ephemeral to begin with, but you know, that, you know, as woodworkers, we inhabit a world that's really tangible and create physical objects. And yet from the publishing side and the content creation side, as much as that phrase kind of makes me want to gag a little bit of doing stuff that isn't tangible, you know, like a video, there's no there's no tape anymore on a video or wait. So we're not, we're not recording this to CD <laughs> direct to VHS. <laughs> yeah. I think we're, once we get a collection of 200, we're going to put them on CD. There we go. Cool. Sell sell the, the printed transcripts. Yeah. You know, so like you said, John, like, like I, I have the whole collection of shop notes magazine, even though for my work stuff, whenever we're looking up something, it's for one specific item and we use our, internal archive that we have that is really convenient. But you're right, there is something about having the print version of a magazine and just flipping through with the sense of discovery that I don't think you get on on digital searches. In the same sense that to me it was always fun getting the Lee Valley catalog in the mail and being able to just thumb through it. Even though most of the stuff mm -hmm doesn't necessarily apply to me. Like you'll in the flipping through of it, you'll discover something that that sense of surprise, so to speak, just doesn't exist in an email or a web version of the catalog or a searchable site. But so it made me feel better about holding on to like, for example, woodworking books that I have a bunch of woodworking related books that, you know, if you've 
been woodworking for any length of time, like you kind of know already about cutting rabbits and stub tenon and groove and that sort of thing. So do I need to have the books that have kind of those joinery things in there? Well, yes and no. You know, I mean, if you wanted to go straight minimalist or, uh, what's her name on keeping things tidy, Marie Kondo, you know, all of that stuff should go. But yet I kind of like having that reference library, so to speak, to be able to go back through and it's almost like, a, it's almost like another part of your memory that, you know, you just can remind yourself as using objects of, of memory. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Did you guys read that article when I, I did. sent you the I, link? I or? did read the homework. <laughs> I'm ready for the quiz. Yeah. And it's, it's funny too, because it's like some of the tools and like templates you said that we have, um, we may not use anymore, but they are reminders of the woodworkers we used to be maybe, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, or, you know, stuff we did. So they do have a story behind them. And so it's like, you know, do I keep them? Do I not? Am I going to use them again? Or are they just wall art at this point? And yeah, so, but yeah. But as you mentioned before, I, I mean, I try to be a minimalist. I, I'm always, you know, thinking beyond like when I'm buying a new tool or, or putting something into my shop, it's, you know, you have the cost of the actual item. You have also have to think about the cost of the real estate it takes up or mm -hmm. do now I have to have the cost in building a shelf or a cabinet to store this. And, you know, so all these things have, you know, layers of costs. So it's, you know, it's hard to, to, to keep adding on or it's like, I get to a certain point it's like now do I need a bigger house or a bigger shop to to store all these things that I don't need or use or just kind of collect so those are all kind of things you need to take into account when as you go through this process so yeah but see I have a weird like I have a weird thing where I would say that in my house and if you ask Becky she's been in my house for photo shoots mm -hmm. before drives her nuts. I have nothing in my house. Like I got furniture, but like I don't I don't do the tchotchke type stuff. Mm -hmm. Like we're very smart. Like I'm very much a minimalist, right? You would not know that walking into my shop cuz I have a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> However, I don't have it, it's everything I use. Like I I feel like having bought and sold so many tools, I know what I use and I, I, I can easily recognize when I, hey, I haven't touched a tool in a long time. Right. You know, and it's like not necessary. I don't need it. Um, I don't have any desire or notion to be, you know, like there's guys, you know, mil minimalist woodworkers or, you know, are, uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of people that do the minimalist thing. I have no desire to do that and like fit all my tools into a you know, shoebox and be able to build whatever I want out of that shoebox. Like, meh, doesn't do anything for me. Right. But I also like to make sure what I have is efficient, I guess. So to the point where, you know, I do I need a number five plane when I have my low angle jack? Probably not. Um, do I need a number four, even though I have a four and a half? Probably not, because I don't 
they do the same task. Mm-hmm. Right. A little bit differently, but they do the same task. However, oftentimes I will be like, ah, wish I had a second Colt router that I could set up for this bit, you know? <laughs> and I've always thought, why do you need more than one palm router? Right. But then I get to a point where I'm like, I really could use the second palm router. Um, not for, not for the, like John said, not for the cost of buying it and the cost of storing it, but it's like, Oh, that would be really nice. Um, I also have a problem where, um, I have lots of different hobbies and I have had lots of different hobbies. Right. Um, so I collect a lot of different stuff for those different hobbies and it all kind of lives in my shop. Mm -hmm. Like I have a full set of leatherworking tools. I have rolls of leather, although Dylan kind of sequestered my rolls of leather, uh, (laughs) recently. So like I have all that stuff in my shop. I have like nickel plating stuff in my shop because I have been messing around with nickel plating some stuff. You know what I mean? So I have all of that rando type stuff like that. That's what adds to the clutter in my shop. Now, do I see my shop as a, you know, bookmarked journey of my woodworking timeline? No, because, A, I don't care that much to sit there and reflect on it. You know, like, I I get how you can make the connection. Like, say, hey, right. I started with, you know, Stanley planes or storing them and found out I enjoyed restoring them and sell them. And I ended up with a set of Lee Nielsen planes. Like I could make that connection and I could walk somebody through that journey. But from the outside, like I don't, I don't hold on to my first plane that I ever had. You know what I mean? Right. It doesn't do much for me, I guess. Um, Which is fair. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I live in the here now, man, mm-hmm. I guess like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I don't know. Although, but yet you do, like you just said, you do collect the odd ephemera of things, you know, like oh, leather working tools or completely, you know, turning stuff or fishing yeah. lure things. And okay, yeah, yeah, and they're know. okay. So uh, no, I guess yeah. part of what I'm saying is, you know, like yes, it's a vehicle of memory, and maybe that's not the it, the best all encompassing way to describe it, but are especially for people who are dedicated in a specific hobby and we're using Mm -hmm. woodworking here is that your workshop the tools you have and the reasons for them all reflect who you are as a woodworker or whatever and that includes your past but also includes very much so present i would say everything in my shop is very much a snapshot of who i am right it's a snapshot of my personality yeah is what it is yeah which um, in your shop says ADD. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hyperfixation is what we call yeah, it. I was going to say <laughs> my garage is a snapshot of my personality. It's an absolute mess of <laughs> open tabs right now. But I'm going to get together one of these days. Right. Yeah. You know? Now, I will say I do have some sentimental things in my shop. Uh, I feel like we've talked about sentimental tools in the past, too. Probably Um, where it's like, I don't, I don't hold on to a tool for sentimental reasons. Like, you know, if, if I say that, but now I kind of question if I say that or there are, there are certain tools where like somebody has given me and it's like, Oh cool. They gave it to me because they know I like to clean up and sell tools. And that's what they expected me to do. 
there are also some tools that I have bought from people that I got to know those people. And now I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to hold on to these because A, I don't have them. And I don't, you know, so I, I kind of like hold on to these because I met this mm-hmm. person and then when I bought them, whatever. But yeah. I do have things in my shop that are semi-sentimental, right? Um, you know, just little kind of... Becky's obviously never been in my shop because I have little tchotchkes on my shelves um, from stuff when I was younger. You know, got a little uh, die-cast um, gladiator from when I was in Rome. You know, I got it at the Coliseum when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, stuff like that. Or um, I have... Uh, my grandpa and grandma always had a... It's like a... It's a. It's, I grew up fishing with my grandpa, so it's a trout, which we never trout fished, which is weird, but it's a trout wind chime. And it always was outside their their door. And when, when we moved them out of their house and when they passed away, I grabbed that and that hangs in my shop. Like, sentimental to me. Um, right. But not directly, none of that's directly word related because that's my space. Right. My shop's my space. So, yeah. and it's kind of a snapshot of my personality. So yes, I guess... By extension, yes, it is a little bit of a snapshot into my past, uh-huh. but you know, in a roundabout way, right? So, anyway, like that, like I said, that article was just really interesting to me. You know, you just sometimes you just stumble on something that mm-hmm. on the surface wouldn't necessarily apply or whatever, but for some reason that one affected me, and I think some of it was also the photos that went with it of his space of mm-hmm. you know, like what did, I think he had he's got like 200,000 albums or something like that. And, you know, so, and a huge collection of CDs and a bunch of eight tracks and didn't he have like a little Prince shrine set up? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he had, like he said, he's got some, uh, dedicated to specific artists, you know, whether it's, uh, Michael Jackson or Prince or, you know, Janet Jackson, I think he mentioned a few others in there and it was just kind of, kind of cool to see how he had it arranged in the same way that when I look at other woodworking magazines, I always like to see how other people have their shop arranged because Mm -hmm. it's a reflection of who they are as a woodworker and illustrates, you know, both what's important to them, you know, what, you know, the dusty corners of their shop indicate places that they don't, that they keep stuff, but don't necessarily use it. And the Mm -hmm. stuff that's, used is usually in the middle and out in the open and that informs like tool choices and methodologies for how they would build a plywood case compared to somebody else you know or whether they're even built it with plywood so uh, once again thank shaper tools they're sponsoring today's episode they make the shaper origin that handheld cnc router i'm sure you've seen it in a variety of places it adds digital precision to your woodworking you can do all kinds of stuff with it that gives you both speed and precision you know like cabinetry construction hardware installation joinery quite a bit of stuff you can try it in your shop risk-free for 30 days check out shapertools.com to learn more yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that because it's like seems like any time someone sends in a picture of something and it's in their shop, we're always looking in the background of like, ooh, look what they did back there. <laughs> and it's not even like that organized of a shop. And it's just like cool to see what they got going on in there. Or if I'm, you know, walking around the neighborhood in the summer or spring and somebody's got their garage door open and they're, you know, doing something there, I'm kind of like peeking in there. It's like, ooh, how do they have yeah. it set up or what are they doing or 
So yeah. it's always cool to, yeah, to see what other people have going on and how they do things. So question kind of related. Yeah. Uh, what do you guys think a spotless, absolutely clean shop says about somebody as a woodworker? To me, one of two things, a, they are, or are a retired engineer of some sort. Yep. That's fair. Yeah. Or B they're never there. <laughs> okay. That's also fair. <laughs> they like the idea of a workshop and I'm, yeah. you know, caricaturing a, to a right. small, largish degree, but yeah. Or that's kind of what a sociopath. Like. <laughs> <laughs> because okay, so I feel like I I go through spurts where I absolutely I, I don't deep clean my shop. My shop's never been deep clean, mm. but I go through I go through spurts where it's like I can't stand having a mess. So like right. I will go through like right now my shop is kind of a mess. Now it's a mess for me or to me. For most people, they're like, wow, this is pretty clean. But to me, it's an absolute mess. Like, I hate it. And it's probably because it's in my basement. And I know if I walk in there with my socks, I'm getting sawdust through the rest of the house, right? Uh, but I do go through spurts where I will absolutely clean it up. And, th- I mean, I don't get, I can't get the dust off everything. Especially after routing MDF in my shop. The worst decision <laughs> of my life. <laughs> it's everywhere. It oh, is yeah. everywhere. Um, but... You know, like, I like to go hang out with my buddy Russ here in town. Um, and Russ is a, he's an avid woodsmith reader. And he pointed, he called me last night to point out that a tip I submitted to the magazine had Runnels spelled wrong. So Embarrassing. I know. Wow. And I didn't even submit the tip. Dang it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, like, his shop where um, he works is he has a machine shed next to his house. Um, it's not organized. It's not clean. But I am so much more comfortable in that shop than I am in, like, other people's shops where I've been. And maybe it's just my relationship with Russ. Um, I'm so much more comfortable in the organized chaos of his shop than I am in somebody's shop that is absolutely, like, spotless and everything has an outline on the wall where you hang it back up. Like Right. And I like it clean, but I just... There's shops I'm comfortable in. There's shops I'm not as comfortable in, you know. So, yeah. No, I would agree. I prefer, and I'm the same way that I have to go through periodically in my workshop and just like move stuff around, clean it up, mm-hmm. throw some stuff out, put stuff in the burn pile, whatever, and just kind of yeah. get rid of it. But when you do that would you still say it's a state of organized chaos or is it a thoughtful organization? Like I would say that it's a thoughtful organization in, in my best moments. Okay. You know, like after, after the winter when I'm not in there as often, just because it's cold, it's, it's hard for me to want to be out there because of, you know, I've just collected a bunch of tools, gathered them up, brought them into work here for a class or something like that. And then I get home and rather than taking the extra 38 seconds to put the stuff away, it just gets set on my bench and then it collects dust and there's spider webs all over the place. And my, my, you know, then when I, when it gets warm, you get that first warm day and you're like, 
I'm going out in my shop and the garage door is going to be open. And then you get out there and it's like, ah, and now I got to clean it for another hour and a half. Yep. I, same thing. Bringing tools in here is the biggest disaster to my shop. Like without a doubt. And it's because I get home from day of work here. I have tools in my truck. Usually it's more than one trip to my truck to get the tools out. Yeah. And I'm carrying them into the shop. It's it through the house, downstairs, and into the shop. And the first flat surface is my table saw. So where does everything collect? It collects on the table saw. So. Yeah. And then when you have shop time, what's the first thing you need to do? Cut something on the table saw. Exactly. So, yep. But I did figure out something to start doing with my scraps, at least. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So I just sent a pallet of lumber down to... Uh, Las Vegas, um, and I had a bunch of little cutoffs. I had paid to kiln dry these things, okay? Like, not not, right. not me just cutting free logs and turning them into money. I had to pay to kiln dry these. So I'm going to get every little ounce of money I can out of them. So I took the little cutoffs to my bandsaw and cut small turning blanks out of them, and I wax sealed them. Oh, okay. I'm going to start sending them. I'm going to start selling them bad boys on eBay. Like, <laughs> like, like... It sounds stupid, but people, if you search for turning blanks on eBay, there are thousands of turning blanks on eBay, and people buy the crap out of them. If you think about it, though, you can't necessarily get kiln-dried turning blanks readily, like in the south or western part of the states, where there aren't, where there aren't that many trees. So, right. kind of interesting. So, I feel better now about hoarding stupid scraps. See, there you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're going to save all the wax, too. Save all the kids' crayons. Uh, so you can wax. <laughs> right now, I have a like a Goodwill... Uh, oh, God. What is the name? Like a, a crockpot. A Goodwill crockpot oh, full yeah. of old candles that I melted. It's like to the top. Mm-hmm. It is like burgundy red because there was like three big red candles I melted. Mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm, smells mm-hmm. like cinnamon, vanilla, fall spice. Because it's like yes. every flavor. <laughs> Scented turning. Yes. It's a thing. I did I, I did have to kind of experiment first because I'm like, this wax is red. Is it going to like soak through the end grain of the wood and like stain it? And it yeah. doesn't appear that it does. Okay. It's a feature. Yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. Pre-stained. Red wood. Yes. Mm-hmm. So. I it, Which reminds me of one of the cleverest weirdest tips we ever did and then made chris fitch do a video of was the uh somebody had submitted the yeah the little pod warmer for you know like scented pods for in your house but have it in your shop so a your shop smells nice b you have a readily available supply of molten wax to dip your screws in for driving for better lubrication. Mm -hmm. So it was, that one was crazy like a fox. And and C, every time you use it, you can picture Chris Fitch muttering to himself about it. Like, what am I doing? Why, how did I end up here? What decisions led me to What life choices, Yeah. yeah. So question, do you guys wax your screws before you drive them? Or is that one of those like, do as I say, not as I do? Uh, I actually do that more and more now. Okay. I I would say probably 75 to 80% of the time I put wax on the screw. I don't bother. 
<laughs> I don't use a lot of like soft screws though. Like if I was doing something where I'm think it's gonna possibility of it snapping. Yep. I might take a little more care in it. That's what that's but. the only time I do it is brass screws. Or if it's like I really should pre drill this, but it's a whole lot easier to just rub some wax on the screw and hope that that's gonna mm-hmm. be a stopgap, you yeah. know? But yeah, I even pre I do pre drill like all the even like doing like construction stuff or decks or it's like I you know pre drill and countersink all the holes so and l- line them all up and <laughs> you know even the ones you don't see right still do it I so. was is that a byproduct of your engineering background or is that a byproduct of the woodsmith background. Uh, that's probably more of an engineering personality thing. Like it wasn't taught as an engineer. It's just more of a mentality, you know, obsessive compulsive engineer thing. Okay. So, because I, which is saying something because you use a lot of screws. (laughs) I do. I don't play around. (laughs) Do not play around. Well, he doesn't trust that half of them didn't snap off. Right. (laughs) I I have, I have trust issues. (laughs) Okay. So I, I have therapy. I have learned that the longer I have been here around the, the shop guys and Chris and the woodsmith way, the more I take time to lay out my screw holes and pre-drill them instead of just blindly driving them. It's like when you flip over a project that you know is never supposed to be flipped over and you see all the screw holes are countersunk, lined up, they're all in order, it's like... Oh, they're all the same screw. They're all the same screw. The heads are all clogged. Not like what? Yeah. Well, the head's not. No. That's not a big deal. But now it drives me nuts on when I do my own projects. You know, like I have a little bin in my hardware cart where it's like the eight by number, or number eight by inch and a quarters. But I have some that are straight up square drive, and some that are like the combination drive, and I can't mix and match. Mix them. Yep. On a project. I, yeah, I did that this weekend. I was putting together a, uh, it's a router jig for use at the lathe. So okay. you have a table, you sit stops on it. It's for like routing like V grooves and bowls and stuff on the outside of bowls. Oh, yeah. And it clamps a Bosch router on top with a, you know, the two part clamp like we've, we've shown a thousand times. I could not, I could not bring myself to use the all thread I had. It wasn't even all thread, it was their carriage bolts. But because one of them was like the gray pot metal and one of them was like zinc plated. And it's like, yeah. I couldn't mix the two sheens. Like, I couldn't <laughs> do it. I'm like, oh, and, I, and it's a shop jig. It's like, you should be able to do that. I know. Nope. And every time you're going to yeah. see it. And anybody that thinks working on Woodwork Magazine is all, you know, pixie dust and roses, it's not. This is the byproduct. You have these personality mm-hmm. disorders after you're done. Yep. Trauma. Trauma. Yeah. Do it. Yeah, I have noticed though. Uh, Chris Fitch does not like lay out screws, but he can do it visually, <laughs> where they're all like evenly spaced and yeah. lined up. He has, and, yeah. Yeah. He has a Jarvis like, grid okay. on his glasses; he can just see it all. Yeah, yeah. He's like the human combination square, <laughs> like go go gadget combination square oh, hands. Yeah. I say, what what are the next Woodsmith projects coming out? Because I don't pay attention to Woodsmith anymore. Sorry, guys. Wow. Yeah. Well, just wait until that hits your mailbox, <laughs> okay. Logan. Yeah. You're gonna, your mind's gonna. I'm not be even blown. on the comp list, yo. So, we have a, 
We have an issue that's due in a couple of weeks, and in that issue is a valet chair, okay. a router table, uh, a large cabinet inspired by uh, George Nakashima, the studio furniture maker from the probably the mid-20th century, I guess is the best mm-hmm. way to describe it. Um, the A sink, a vanity stand that John designed. And it's probably going to be on the cover. Probably going to be on the cover because that's usually how it rolls with John's projects. Yeah. And one more project. Uh, the clock. Did oh, the clock. clock. Yeah. The clock CNC that. The uh, gear clock. Yeah. Chris did one. We're trying to mix in some projects periodically that are largely driven by CNC for those that have it. Um, and also those who are interested in reading about how stuff like that gets put together. So, but we are also going to include patterns for the gears so that if you are a scroll saw person, you can do that. Cause I know that there are a lot of folk that, um, like employing their scroll saw in, in those kinds of situations. Mainly the Intarsia scroll yeah, sawyers, scroll sawyers, the Intarsia called? crowd usually. Yeah. Yeah. They don't they don't subscribe to our magazine because you pissed them off. <laughs> oh, They're just gone. wait till they see the just wait till We've they see them. the Intarja cabinet that's coming up. Right. Uh, that's funny. So anyway, I think there's some it's a broad mix of projects, yeah. but I think there's some pretty cool pretty cool ones yeah. in there. I mean I kinda see them floating around, obviously. I had to move that Nakashima right. cabinet mm-hmm. four times and that was four times too many. Um, yeah, because it's like what five feet tall and eighteen inches deep and probably almost four feet wide, and it's all one inch walnut, all one inch yeah. walnut, full of drawers and shelves. Yeah, and, a lot of walnut. Yeah. Todd and I almost had hernias lifting it onto a cart this last time. I mean, I see them around, but I just don't yeah. know when they're hitting. I mean, right? I mean, oh yeah, no, I totally lose yeah, track of stuff like, like that because oh, cool. you know Mark and Steve will be you know, like two issues ahead on projects and you just, your head kind of spins as to what's going on when. And mm-hmm. so for those who don't know, you can keep track of what we're doing in the shop. Uh, every Thursday at one o'clock in the afternoon, we do a live on Facebook, just doing a shop tour of what's going on with the designers and, uh, our shop craftsmen on the projects that they're building. Some of the issues that are coming up as we go along. So you can kind of see, the see the sausage getting made on uh, every Thursday for our shop update. I'm glad you clarified that so, it was in the afternoon. It would be more interesting yeah. at one in the morning. One o'clock. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. there has been a few one right. in the morning shop times to get yes. projects. Yes, I done. believe yep. each of us have been here at one in the morning at one time or another, finishing the a witching project. Hour. Yeah, <laughs> the witching hour. <laughs> uh, Christmas Eve. <laughs> Yep. Or some home improvement project. I remember my first house Mm -hmm. after moving here, I was building kitchen cabinets and doing items here and had something very similar to John where I don't know if it was necessarily an assumption or inferring that one measurement at one part of the room was the same in the same part of the room, but two feet farther back. And then trying to figure out how to adjust cabinet sizes to match that. Yeah. Never assume. So. 
<laughs> Except when you yeah. do. Yep. So a uh, little project update. I'm almost, I'm closing in on finishing my wood hand plane, the not so smooth plane. I got the body essentially done, glued in, came up with a handle shape and got it all glued in, used a stainless steel hex bolt for the strike button at the back. Um, so all I need to do, I think really is to make the lever cap for it. Once I get some quarter inch steel to shape that bad boy. So it's kind of fun. It's been a little bit of a challenge in some respects, especially in creating this opening for the blade and getting it flat and a consistent angle and looking good. So, so would you do it that way again or would you cut it apart? Um, I feel like this version, which is based on the Cecil Pierce plane that you have, Logan, uh, is kind of a compromise because it incorporates a lever cap instead of like the old school wood planes where it has a wood wedge that sits in its own separate mm -hmm. mortise, so to speak, or escarpment or whatever. I, I meant, sorry, I meant more of the, the ramp. Would you cut it? Like vers you... versus a Krenov yeah. style? I mean, because yeah. you could do that same, same like Razy style with cutting the sides oh, off. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it would be an easier construction. And I've done... Right, it would be. And I've made, I don't know, three or four, you know, that laminated, commonly kind of referred to as the Krenov style planes. And I did this one just to try this version. Um, having done several Krenov style planes, that makes more sense in my head. Mm -hmm. And even now on the bed of this one, I'm not super confident that it's perfectly square to the sides, so to speak. You know, that when, when I put the blade in there and I, ha it'll have to be after I get the lever cap made, whether, you know, the blade will project evenly out of there, or if I'm kind of tilted one way or the other, yeah. which is a big deal necessarily. Not really. Cause I can just tap the blade over, you know, to, to even that back out. But, in an ideal world, I want that as square as possible. Sure. Yeah. So, but it's been fun. It's taken longer than I thought, but I've had a bunch of other things going mm -hmm. on both here and home that have gotten in the way of it. So chronologically, it's taken a lot of time, but time invested in it isn't as much as I thought it would be. You guys got anything? John shaking his head no. John says no. How's the no. beehive coming? Bee house. Sorry. It's getting there. I've been work bee house. Been working on getting something drawn up this week, but it's like just as soon as I get started working, there's something else that comes up and I get distracted and so it's like same. It's not a lot of time invested, but it's like chronologically always getting interrupted, but Yeah. By the end of this week, it'll be there. There we go. Because it's like only Monday, right? Sure. Sure. Yes. We'll call it Monday. <laughs> uh, no, so I uh, mm -hmm. I have the next issue of Popwood. I'm doing a side table. Um, I keep I keep wanting to do a shaker side table just that matches my, my table at home, which maybe that's a good way to do it. Um, 
my table at home is that Thomas Mosier inspired like boat side table. So bent lamination sides. Hmm. Maybe I do that. So instead of a instead of a traditional square shaker side table, it ends up having, you know, four kind of radius sides. That would be kind of interesting, maybe. Um, right. But I haven't really decided on that. It will be a it will be a fairly quick and simple build, so I'm not terribly concerned uh, time frame wise on that. My wife has kind of lit a fire under my butt to, to get her get her doors done for our office that hmm. I I said I would have done on this podcast one year ago. I said that. Right. They're not done. Yes. I have the I have the lumber for them. <laughs> They're just not done. Uh, so I need to do those. Um, I did just have a call today. I'm I'm super excited about this, and I don't know I don't know how it's gonna do with readership or anything and i don't don't really care because i'm super excited about it and i'm only one that matters but like i had a call this morning with um a lady here in iowa her name is jennifer felton um she is like a world champion bird carver like you look at her stuff and you cannot tell if it is a photo of a bird or if it's a carving like she is that good um, so we are going to do kind of a 3d carving basics. Um, so sure. I know there's a lot of like whittling and character type carvings, but then the other end of the spectrum is the ultra realism carving. So we're going to do a kind of a, it will be a, it will be a project where she'll be carving a pheasant. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. And it's actually going to be her pheasant for the 2023 world, um, championship deal um but it will be more of like a you know hey here's how the process is done and here's the techniques whether somebody wants to carve a bird or not great but pick up the techniques and see how it's done so it'll be it'll be super cool i'm I'm very excited for this uh and it's cool that she's semi-local so a two-hour drive gets me to her place to do photos so yeah that's awesome yeah having uh done some judging at the iowa state fair uh, I don't do judging on the carving part, just more of the general woodworking. But mm-hmm. seeing seeing the carving and talking to uh, some of the people there, like Iowa is home to three world-class yes. carvers in Which the sense that they just – the three of them basically trade best of show every year. Yeah, in the world. Yeah, which yeah. is I mean, is they exhibit in nuts. at the state fair, and the, some of their, like you said, to see them in person, you fully expect that fish or bird or whatever to yeah. just jump away from the diorama. Yeah, if you look at her homepage, um, she has her owl that she won um, best in the world with. Um, wow, it's jenniferfeltonart.com. Um, and it's, she told me she had like 1,800 hours into it. What? That's I don't even know f- how to understand a that. full-time job. Yeah. Like, geez, Louise. But, yeah, it's it's just insane. Um, yeah, 2019 first place win at World Championship. And it just is it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So I'm, I'm pretty excited for that. Um, so I think we're, we're going to do, uh, do a kind of a 3D bird project with her and then i think i would like to also do some form of flat work because it's funny as i was having this meeting with her on on teams 
She's like, here, hold on, I'm going to show you this. So she picks up her laptop and walks over to the door to her shop, and she throws it open. And it's like a, it looked like it was either an ash or maybe a, like a, a white oak door, but she did a big owl carving on the outside of it. Oh, and, wow. And so she did like All a right. big flat carving. So I was like, that would be cool. Let's, you know, maybe that will be like a, a collaboration project where we do like her flat carving on something, on a furniture mm-hmm. piece, which would be kind of fun. That would so, be cool. Yeah, so super interesting, fun. I'm excited. Super interesting. That one was for our uh, YouTube commenters. Fascinating. It was super fascinating. There we go. I've become super self-aware of that now. That I I've always said interesting, not interesting. Right. <sighs> yeah. All right. I think that wraps up another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, one again, once again, thank Shaper Tools. They're sponsoring today's episode. They make the Shaper Origin, that handheld CNC router. I'm sure you've seen it in a variety of places. It adds digital precision to your woodworking. You can do all kinds of stuff with it that gives you both speed and precision, you know, like cabinetry construction, hardware installation, joinery, all quite a bit of stuff. You can try it in your shop risk-free for 30 days. Check out shapertools.com to learn more. If you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks, I'd love to hear from you. You can email us, woodsmith at woodsmith.com, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where you can see uh, the podcast as well. And check out the show notes page for some of the things that we've been talking to and about and links. You'll find that at woodsmith.com slash podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Bye.